Hello and welcome to Microphilosophy, the podcast featuring philosophical discussions with thinkers worth thinking about. I'm Julian Bagini. This fourth series of Microphilosophy has featured several of my philosophy salons, informal conversations at St George's Bristol, where I've been the philosophy in residence since 2018. That role had also involved, in the days before Covid, conducting some pre-concert interviews with musicians and composers. I thought I'd end the series with a selection from some of these talks, but when I started editing the chat with Will Gregory and Graham Fitkin, I quickly decided it deserved an episode all to itself. Gregory and Fitkin were in town back in 2018 to perform with Will Gregory's Moog Ensemble, playing, among many other pieces, some of Wendy Carlos's seminal Switched on Bark. Will Gregory is best known as half of Goldfrap and is also a composer and producer. Graham Fitkin is a composer, pianist, conductor, best known for his minimalist and post-minimalist work. Our conversation contains gems for both synth geeks and those like me who don't know much except what we like. And if you're thinking, what has this got to do with philosophy? Well, just take a listen, and if you're still asking by the end, I'd suggest your conception of philosophy might just be too narrow. Yeah, electronic music, uh, over the years, there's been a lot of kind of prejudice about it. 1999, Roger Scruton, he wrote in a book called An Intelligent Person's Guide to Modern Culture, writing about electronic music, uh, popular music mainly. Sometimes, as with the Spice Girls or the Pet Shop Boys, serious doubts arise as to whether the performers make more than minimal contribution to the recording, which owes its trademark to subsequent sound engineering designed precisely to make it unrepeatable. The Pet Shop Boys, their great credit, sued him <laughs> and were paid an undisclosed amount of libel to settle the case. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's hit the headlines, that's pop music, but that kind of idea that electronic music isn't really, you know, electronic instruments aren't really proper instruments, it's not really proper music. I'm just wondering, when you were growing up, when you were first learning music and in your musical education, was that a prejudice that you came across strongly at all or not at all? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I hear about it because we were signed to Mute Records and uh, run by Daniel Miller and, and Depeche Mode on that label. And we heard that there was problems with, to begin with, because it was all electronic. And yeah, they were told that it wasn't proper music because it wasn't on proper instruments. And it seemed to be this weird assumption that if it's electronic, that it ain't real unless it's acoustic. But, you know, that feels like it's uh, in the dim, distant, dark ages now, doesn't it? Yeah. It feels like... Uh, I mean, I think that it was, a, it was a pain that that kind of attitude did prevail because it encouraged synth manufacturers to keep making stupid presets on their synths that said things like oboe <laughs> or bassoon. <laughs> and you just thought, well, I like the sound, but it, it's not... I don't want to try and make a bassoon noise with it. I want to just hear that, yeah. you know? Is that, is that how you felt about it? Yes, I think so. But I think it's, it's interesting. You ask us yeah. what we feel about it, but we might feel something slightly different to you guys. I think from an audience perspective still, sometimes you look at a band and you wonder what's actually happening live. Yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, that's partly because there is a certain... I mean, with your show this but, evening, for example, is, is there are there any sort of pre-programmed elements to the performance at all? N- no, yes and no. Um, we're cheating a little bit sometimes. Before you even say what the cheat was, it's interesting you use the word cheat, because in a way, in, by using the word cheat, you're kind of granting something to the critic, aren't you? That, that if, if there's any element of pre-programming or something, that somehow is, is, is not 
bona fide in some way? I, I just think it's a problem with any innovation that, you know, I, I mean, the fact is, yes, the sounds do not come out of uh, acoustic instruments. They come out of speakers. But speakers are actually acoustic instruments. And, and the way that they work is that they vibrate the air in just the same way that somebody playing a trumpet or a, a, a violin vibrates the air. And what's, but what's exciting to me about um, the instruments that we play is that they're not recordings of a sound played through a speaker, which is what you get when you listen mm. to um, you know, a symphony on your record player. You could argue that that's less real than what we're doing because we're just taking an electronic sound which will be a capacitor charging and discharging you know, 440 times a second to make, say, A above middle C, and it's vibrating the coil inside the speaker at that speed, and that's what you're hearing. So you're kind of hearing the circuit. You're not, there's nothing in between the circuit and what you're hearing. Um, there's nobody's lips, there's nobody's rosin, there's nobody's vocal cords. So it's kind of more real, if you like, than, than an acoustic instrument. So you could argue it both ways. I suppose one of the other things which, which people might think is that when a, when a violinist or a trumpeter has been learning their instrument for many, many years to get that particular brilliant sound which they do, you see us do less. There's a, there's a potential for people to think that we're not doing anything, but actually there's so many potential problems that we can create during a performance, <laughs> so many things which could go wrong that actually it's very live and it feels to us on stage as if it's incredibly live because you've pressed the wrong thing at the wrong time and you will all know it. <laughs> I mean, the technology aspect is interesting, isn't it? Because no one sort of considers a church organ not to be a proper instrument, and, but that's a hugely complicated mechanism and lots of things that are making that sound possible are not in the direct control of the, the organists themselves or it, it, there's, there's certainly a lot of mechanical underpinning. When it comes to recording of this sort of music in studios... Because one of the things Roger Scruton was objecting to was his perception that the sound engineers do all the work. But I'm interested you know, in both, when you're producing recorded music, isn't that just now understood to be part of the compositional process? What goes on in, in the studio, what goes on in mixing and so forth, isn't that as a legitimate part of creating the artefact, the music at the end, as the actual writing of a score, for example? Well, you know, the thing is that um, if you're in the know... Uh, and you're you know, like a boring, nerdy person like I am. I like to look at the producer and the engineer at the back of the album because I do think that those people are important, and I think that when it comes to recording... And, you know, Rudy Van Gelder, who recorded all the most famous Blue Note records, I think is like the fifth member of the band. You know, mm -hmm. people talk about George Martin being the fifth Beatle, and um, uh, I think these people, whether you call them an engineer or a producer or sound enabler, whatever you want to call mm. them, they are definitely taking the raw material, if you like, and sculpting it, and sometimes they elevate it into something way beyond, uh, you know, what walked in the door at nine in the morning that day, you know, and I think you have to accept that that is part of it. I mean, Henry Mancini, apparently, was the guy who started to put spot mics on instruments. Until that moment, apparently, when you recorded for film score, you just stuck the two stereo mics up, which is presumably what Roger Scruton wants us to do. <laughs> Just put your mics up, stand back, let the musicians do all the work. But actually Mancini started to spot mic the things and so he could get a bass flute that was louder than a whole brass section. Mm. And suddenly, I see that as a creative, you know, stepping into a, 
a new creative domain. I mean, one of the things that's interesting I've, I find about a lot of electronic music is that there's an element of, I, 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 difficult to find the right word for it, perhaps you call it like you know, texture, colour, whatever it might be. And it seems that it's very important to the music you're creating that you create a very specific kind of sound, right? Which I guess in classical composition you choose your instrument and you give a sort of, we may give an instruction to how it's to be played, but beyond that it's out of control. Is that something that you think a lot about when you're when you're composing with both of you about you know that the precise sound, the right the right timbre, the right whatever it might be? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, if I write a piece for two oboes, let's say, mm. and they play, a, one of them plays a D and the other one plays an E, then you'll get a very specific thing going on with the sound because they're two oboes. Mm. If I had an oboe and a harp playing a D and an E. Mm. It's entirely different. What you'd be drawn to, it's not that one's better or worse, it's just that it's mm. very, very different. You'd be drawn to the differences between the two instruments, I think. The fact that the harp the harp starts and then it dies away. The oboe can continue. Mm. Uh, they're very different mm. sort of waveforms. Mm. There's all sorts of things going on. And it might actually mean that you're more interested in the sound than perhaps the harmony even. Mm. Because the D and the E on the oboes you're going to hear the D and the E, and that's quite important, the D and the E on the, on the oboe and the harp. You sort of hear them, but actually something else is taking your, your, your interest away, so you're thinking about the sound world. So when I'm writing, not just for whether it's acoustic or electronic instruments, then you're, I'm definitely having to, to think about what sounds, it could change the piece entirely. Yeah. Uh, which is not, not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's great, to, uh, just going back to your last mm. point about producers, when I had spent a, a year writing an album, I actually took it to Will, and Will helped produce it. Um, mm. And he brought a whole new sort of raft of possibilities to it. But nonetheless, I'd created the sound world which I want, the very yeah. specific sound world I wanted. And, and do you think the electronic instrumentation sort of must massively increase those possibilities, the precise feel you're looking for in a particular track? I mean, do you, do you spend ages thinking about which of your particular from your vast collection of um, you know, keyboards you're, you're going to use? Or does it sometimes come the other way around? You sometimes start with a, a sound rather than perhaps even a, a melody or tune? Well, that is, the, that is the $6 million question. Which comes first, the sound or the melody, you know, or the harmony? You know, what is the musical artefact? That, that, you know, because the trouble is, you, know, and you probably find the same, you know, if, if you want to write a piece of music which actually isn't for piano, and you've only got a piano then you're straight away having to sort of use your imagination to get to where you want to go. But if you get an electronic instrument and it just makes a sound, that can sort of catalyze a whole kind of, you know, it might maybe it's got a, oh, I recognize that sound. That, that sounds like that Beatles record. Um, but it reminds me of a fairground. It reminds me of the sound of a, of a bus putting its brakes on. Whatever it is, you know, it suddenly that can catapult you into... Uh, a, a compositional place that playing a note on a piano isn't going to get you to. But also you could be searching for a specific sort of sound on, on an electronic instrument, a synth, and you'd be thinking, well, I need to have more of this and more of that to make the sound I'm after, but I can't get there. But I've got a new sound, which I wasn't expecting, mm. and therefore that sets, sets something off entirely. So it's mm. Well, I'm wondering about the element of trial and error in, in <coughs> composition. Is that something that you... Is it the same whether you're composing with acoustic instruments or electronic instruments, or... You know, is, is there more of that kind of uh, potentiality for, for trial and error if you're using sort of keyboards and synthesizers? 
Well, I mean, I'm, I've probably got a very different process to, to, to Graham because mm. my process is all trial and error. And it always is, I'm looking for the happy accident. Or I'm sort of always, usually bored by something that I'm trying to do. Um, but you have to start somewhere, so you try and do something. But then there's a part of you that's always listening out for the thing that happens by mistake. And, and it's, it's quite hard to do in front of a blank sheet of paper, isn't it? I mean, it, so it's easier to have the computer on a loop and then you, you know, you fall over or drop a cup of muggy on, on, coffee on the keyboard and it makes a sound or whatever it is. Sometimes you find those are the best things. Well, yeah, absolutely. I suppose I find, I think my job is about n- noticing things. That's what I mm. sort of do. And if I notice something, it might be that I'm trying to play something and I'm, I'm not able to, because I'm not good enough, I'm not playing it right, but I play something else. I hit a wrong note and I think, actually, that sounds quite good. Not in this context, maybe, but I must remember that. Uh, or, I'm, or I'm walking through the streets and you hear something and you think, yeah, that sounds like so-and-so, or that, that's the sort of sound I want in that piece. I, I suppose that's the, the sort of arty, composery thing that uh, you're always sort of listening out for mistakes, things which go wrong. I mean, the, the, the instruments themselves, I mean, you, you've got a, you're a massive collector. How many do you now have? How many keyboards do you have? I don't know. You, you actually don't know? No, I'm sorry, I don't know, but it's, it's more than I should have. <laughs> what is it about, a lot of people say that you know, these, the, the earlier analogue um, synthesizers have a, you know, a special kind of sound to them that the more recent synthesizers, the digital ones, don't. Are you of that school? And if so, well, what do you think it is about them that gives them something distinctive and special? Well, I think um, it was funny. I was t- trying to do a talk. I had to talk about um, sound and, and electronics. and um, So I had the mini mood there. And um, I was saying, well, this is a square wave and this is a sine wave. And then this is what you can choose. And the square wave is a bit like a clarinet and the sine wave is a bit like a flute and all the usual things that you say. And then I put an oscilloscope on the mini moog and so I said this is a square wave and it was anything but a square wave it was like <laughs> and then I said oh right well then and this is a triangle wave and it was like <laughs> so you know it the thing is it it's it's already influencing the sound itself because it's imperfect and I think that's the problem, you know. When synthesizers were being developed, there was this idea: no, it must be perfect, must be everything, must be accurate. All these discrepancies must be ironed out. And now we're realizing that these failures, if you like, of perfection that happened in the early design, are the things that we've learned to love because they have a certain unrepeatability about them, don't they? I mean, it's like it's quite often. I find I was trying to sample a, an, a like a Vox Continental organ, and I couldn't sample it because I couldn't loop it. In other words, the sound was changing all the time. Even though it, just, it didn't really sound like that. But actually it was. It had this incredible, complicated, sort of real-time evolution that you couldn't possibly sample. And then, so, so immediately, you know, you, you play a note on these instruments, these old things, and they're doing something. It's not, you know, it's, nothing is bolted down. It's all moving around. And you just think, yeah, this is what I want to hear. It's uncomfortable. Mm. So they're, they're temperamental as well, and they do uh, things like temperature. So when you're setting up for a live performance such as this evening, mm. I mean, when you get the sound check, are you often thinking sort of like, bugger, this isn't sounding like it should do, or, or do you encounter problems like that? Oh, well, uh, what can I tell you? I mean, <laughs> we're looking at that. You know, the, the thing is that we'll, you'll see it anyway, because even in between each number, there will be frantic scurrying and burrowing and twiddling and checking and... Blah, 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 
you know, because yeah. it, it, you just quite, I mean, with that, but that's our aesthetic. We're not using presets. It's not like you dial up the sound by hitting a button. And that is one of the reasons why we're, tr we're trying to say these instruments are expressive and you need time with them in the same way that you do with a traditional instrument. You know, this idea, and I can see what, you know, Roger Screw, it's like, oh, you just push a key and it makes mm. a sound. You haven't got to spend 40 years learning how to play a perfect, you know, mm. note on a violin. And that is part of the way they were designed because they wanted people to buy them who couldn't play, probably. They wanted them to go into a shop and just go, oh, great, you know, I'm a musician. <laughs> um, but that's not actually true no. because yeah. they're not perfect and we're not allowing ourselves to... To, to be perfect, we're, we're building in this kind of risk element, if you like, because we're having to dial up the sounds <coughs> as we go along. I mean, the extent to which these, these instruments bring completely new, sort of expand the musical palette, really. I, I mean, Will, I've heard you talk about how bass in particular, before, you, I mean, before synthesizers, what you could do with bass and the range of bass sounds was quite limited. I mean, how, is, how, how have these synthesizers really expanded the horizons of bass? Well, they're just that. I mean, in an orchestra you find that, say, double bass, which is supposed to be the lowest instrument in the orchestra, if you actually hear it on its own, there's quite, you know, there's a bit of bass there, but there's also all these upper partials. It isn't really that rich in bass, is it? I mean, it no. sort of gives an impression of bass. I mean, if you really want to hear bass in a sort of historic way, you go to a church where they've got a 64-stop organ pedal, and then you'll hear some bass, mm. and that's But if you don't have to go to a church to do that with, um, with a mini-moo, you just go... 32 stop <laughs> and there it is and it is there you know it's yes. uh, and conversely you know you turn it the other way and you're in the piccolo range and beyond in communing with bats and dogs so um. <laughs> so performing this music live um, how is how is what does it kind of add to it is there something about the actual the space itself the, the, being in the sort of acoustic space we, we listen to music through the headphones a lot these days and so forth I mean, the music changes. I mean, St. George's has got a famously good acoustic, right? So do you, do you notice it when you're performing in different venues? Do you, do you really notice how the different acoustic of the venue might uh, change the feel of it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, for this gig, we'll turn off all our reverbs because yeah. <laughs> there's a lovely one there already. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And in yeah. that sense, you say St. George's has got a great acoustic, and indeed it has got a great acoustic, but it's got a great acoustic for acoustic. Right. For, for what we term normal acoustic music, music. Uh, and I played here doing that and it is fantastic but I've also played here uh, making lots of aeroplane noises and all sorts of things and whilst it worked I hope um, it's in a sense it wasn't great for that particular thing so this is a great if you can hear us at the back this is a great acoustic if you can't then it's not good for what we're doing now but there's a great acoustics and there's great acoustics so not, it's not one thing now, of course, the Moog is, is you know, associated so much with now the past now. It was once the future, it's now the past. And, you know, we've gone from analogue to, to digital. But the idea that this is, this is not a retro exercise, right, no. for you? No, I mean, it's a violin retro. Yeah. <laughs> it's 400 years old, but it's still, you know, a staple instrument. That, and, and I suppose what we're saying is it's a kind of manifesto, really, is that, well, what if the mini Moog just because it was invented in our lifetime, unlike any other instrument you can think of, more or less, um, does that mean that it's ephemeral or is it going to last? Only time will tell. But we're kind of saying, no, we think it isn't ephemeral. We think this will last because it has all these potential expressive qualities that you can bring to it in a live performance situation. And that, we're putting that out now. Now, whether that is true or not, 
we're not, you know, really it's up to you to judge, but that is our kind of where we're nailing our colours to the tree. That's what yeah. we're saying. If, if, I mean, if you are sort of creating a new sort of style of music, if you like, a new, almost reinventing chamber music in, in some way, um, what, what do you think that, this would be USP as it were, what do you think that makes this kind of music really different from anything that's, that's come before? I'm hoping that, it, it, that you know, we, we're on a journey to discover what we can do with these instruments, and we're just starting, it feels like. Yeah. There's so much more. For example, take a piece like um, Rheingold, uh, the, the first of the you know, Wagner four operas, where he starts with a bass sound in the orchestra, and then he gradually opens up the harmony, and you get this incredible rise in colour till the end you know the high instruments are all there and it's a bit like just opening a filter on a synthesizer mm. except we can just open a filter on a synthesizer mm. and there we are you know so we can go on these journeys that would take a huge amount of organizing in an orchestral context um just by doing that and i think that that opens up you know this new sound world i'm hoping that it does you know and that that, that that is what we're bringing to it. We're, we're mm. saying, look, you know, the future could be ten mini moogs mm. playing music. Well, one aspect of this, I hope I haven't got you wrong on this, Will, but I think I've heard you saying elsewhere that if you actually listen to how you know the, the bark is played on the moogs compared to how it's played in traditional arrangements, there's a sense in which that the the lines are cleaner. Do you see what I mean? Am I getting you right? Can you explain that? Well, I mean, this is Bach in particular, who never writes. Vertically, he writes horizontally, which means that or every part, if it's the bass, if it's in the middle, if it's in the top, is a melody. So if you've got, you know, as in the case of the Brandenburg, you've got nine melodies happening at once. If they're all played on string instruments, it's quite hard to disentangle that sound and, and identify all the melodies. But if you've got them on nine sounds that are all vastly different, suddenly you get this kind of 3D ability to hear everything separately that you don't get on on a homogenous mm. instruments you know and I think I mean Weben famously orchestrated some part of mm, the um, the Passacaglia with an orchestra and he did incredible things it doesn't sound like Bach anymore in a way it's an amazing thing so I think that's the same territory I think we're exploring and hopefully it brings Bach to life in a way that I mean that's when I first heard that record that's what happened for me was that I could suddenly hear all the detail that wasn't evident. It was more difficult to detect. Thanks very much for giving your time at a, a very difficult time in the evening. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I call Microphilosophy the longest, slowest running philosophy podcast in the world. It started in 2011, but there have only been four seasons, and this is only the 30th episode. So if you'd like the next 11 years to be a bit more productive, please do support the show by sharing this episode, subscribing, or leaving a review. You can find out more about me and sign up for my free weekly-ish newsletter at julianbagini.com, where you'll also find links to hundreds of my articles, numerous videos and podcasts, and my books. You can even become a supporter and get access to exclusive content as well as regular online Café Philosophique-style discussions. So, until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>